How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may He so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. This is the word of the Lord. A former Barton Clinton Gordy presenter, Dr. Beverly Gaventa, has written commentary on this first letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. And she reminds us that if the 27 books in the New Testament, in the Christian Scriptures, were listed in the order in which they were written, this letter would be first. Scholars believe that this letter to Thessalonica was written a good 17 to 20 years before the first gospel was written. It's the oldest material that we have in the Christian section of our Bible. She reminds us that most scholars believe Paul was probably born about the year 10, that he probably had his Damascus Road experience about the year 33, that he began to preach north of what we call the Holy Land today, coming up and over down through his hometown at Tarsus, then into the territory known as Galatia, it's modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, moving north from there up to Ephesus, Colossae, and other churches, finally believing that in a vision the people of Macedonia were begging him to come over the Straits of Bosphorus into Europe, into northernmost Greece. And he crossed over the Straits of Bosphorus, went to Philippi, Philippi lay just west of the ancient city of Byzantium, later changed to Constantinople, today Istanbul. The Romans had built a magnificent highway all the way from Rome to ancient Byzantium. It was called the Via Ignatia. Philippi lay just west of Byzantium, just west of it, Thessalonica, just west of it, Berea. Hundreds of years later, railroad tracks would be laid along that famous Via Ignatia and the train that ran on it would be known as the Orient Express that linked east and west, west to east. Paul's experience at Philippi was not good, you recall. He came into this Macedonian city named for the father of Alexander the Great and said, your gods and goddesses are worthless. They have no validity at all. There is only one true God. They beat him and threw him into jail. In the middle of the night, he was praying along with those who were with him. Some kind of earthquake-like activity sprang the doors of the jail. Paul and those with him were able to escape. They went on down the Via Ignatia to Thessalonica. He seemed to have had a very good ministry there. We don't know exactly how long, how brief it may have been. But the detractors from Philippi found him, chased him on down the road to Berea, and when they found him there as well, he moved 200 miles south to Athens and then over to Corinth. He wrote this letter. Scholars believe that he wrote it either in late 50 or early 51. Paul at that time would have been in his early 40s, maybe 40, 41. We know when he got to Rome and that he was there when he was about 50 
51 or 2, and then we know nothing about him after that. He and Simon Peter both disappear at that point. Scholars believe that Nero had both of them put to death in Rome, and we heard nothing from them after that. This letter to Thessalonica, the oldest material we have in the New Testament. Let's take a look. I underline these words. Night and day we pray for you. We hope to come and see you so that we may restore what is lacking in your faith. Scholars I read this week said, in all of the letter, Paul never tells us what he thought was lacking in the faith of the folks at Thessalonica. But that statement would be true of any church and any Christian, would it not? That we may have grown. We hope we are more nearly like our Lord than we were a year ago, but we're always lacking, always something lacking in every church and in every member of every church. Two weeks ago today, a tombstone was unveiled over in Alabama. A grave unmarked for 28 years now had a headstone because a group of people started listening again to the records of O.V. Wright. Do you remember him? He died November 16, 1980. He was having a heart attack, his third. He'd been picked up by an ambulance in Birmingham, Alabama and died on the way to the hospital. He was only 41. O.V. Wright had grown up in a small church down in Alabama. And those who loved his singing said he never got that church out of him. And when you heard him, you could tell there was church deep down inside of him. But once he started making a lot of money, suddenly there were more women in his life than ever before. Suddenly there was more alcohol in his life than ever before. And then there were drugs of all kinds. Eventually, he was heroin addicted. Started having heart attacks in his late 30s and died at 41. Just a few months ago, a group of people started trying to find his grave to go there and see where this man was buried, whose music they enjoyed so much. And when they found the grave, they found it had no marker on it. And so they set out to raise the necessary funds. And two weeks ago today, that new marker was unveiled. O.B. Wright's son was there. He's a deputy sheriff in Memphis, Tennessee now. He sings a lot like his father, and he sang Amazing Grace. And just when he got to the last line, those who were there say that he broke down and cried, and so did everyone else who was there. Because his father had known the amazing grace of God. But then he failed to let that same amazing grace restore whatever was lacking in his faith. He quit calling on the amazing grace somehow. Lent and Advent, the two seasons of the year where we wear purple, just before the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and just before His coming in late November, early December, those four Sundays, the purple, the purple that we're asking God to restore whatever is lacking in our faith. Number two, Paul writes to these people, I keep praying for you that you will abound in love for each other and for all. 
This word for love, of course, is not the Greek word eros, meaning physical attraction. It's not even philios, meaning friendship, that fraternity brothers, sorority sisters feel for each other. This is the word agape. It's not a feeling. The word agape is not a feeling. It's a conscious decision of the mind to put oneself out for the well-being of another As I've been reflecting on my own 2008, it was a busy year with all the things that were going on at Boston Avenue Church. And I was a delegate to three different big Methodist conferences. We were two weeks in Fort Worth for a general conference. We were a week in Dallas for the jurisdictional conference. We were a week at the annual conference for Oklahoma. I was a part once more of electing bishops, three new bishops for the Methodist Church. I was remembering the first time I saw bishops elected That was in 1972 down in Houston. I was not a delegate in 72, just an observer. But I saw the pastor of this church first elected at that conference, Finus Crutchfield. And another elected right behind him was Robert Goodrich. Dr. Goodrich had been pastor of First Methodist Church in Dallas all the years that we were there at SMU. Much beloved, much admired Dr. Goodrich as Dr. Crutchfield. I was remembering a story recently that Dr. Goodrich liked to tell. Before he was at First Methodist Dallas for many years, he was pastor at Trinity United Methodist Church out in El Paso. He said that he was pastor in Trinity Church during World War II. That one day, just before the end of the year, shortly before Christmas, he got a letter. And this letter had inside it seven offering envelopes. The letter was brief. It said, Dr. Goodrich, welcome to El Paso and to Trinity Church. I'm one of your members. I've enclosed my tithes for the next seven weeks. And it said, I opened one envelope after another on the financial secretary's desk, and there was 75 cents in each one. Three quarters. It was heavy. Three quarters in each envelope. Seven envelopes. I asked the financial secretary, who is this fellow? And she said, he's dying of tuberculosis. They've done all they can do for him at the local hospital and he's been sent home to die. He lives in a little lean-to, she said, behind a house in one of the poorest neighborhoods in El Paso right near the border with Mexico. He said, I want to meet this fellow. She said, you will be more impressed when you know how little he has and that he sends us 75 cents a week, every week. Dr. Goodrich decided to find out more about the fellow and discovered that, in fact, he received a meager little pension, $30 a month, $7.50 a week. But he gave a tenth of that to the church, 75 cents every week to the church. He said he went to that neighborhood, found that house, found the lean-to out back, knocked at the door, and the man said, come in. Dr. Goodrich introduced himself to this fellow told him how much he appreciated his faithfulness and his generosity in giving. And the man said, well, he was glad to do it. He loved Trinity Church. He loved the Lord. He wanted to be generous. He got seven fifty a week. He gave 75 cents. Dr. Goodrich said, but how do you take care of yourself here? Well, he said, it's strange. I guess one of the nurses at the hospital where I was treated said she would come by on her own every morning and cook food for me for the day. She comes early every morning and fixes my three meals, puts them in that little refrigerator right there, and I eat them later in the day. She comes every day, 
member of Trinity Church, by the way, he said. Dr. Goodrich said he said a prayer with this man, Joe, and then went back to the church and went on with the work he needed to do. He got a letter a few days later. This was from a young man in their church serving in the United States Navy in the South Pacific. Christmas, 1942. And this young man said, Dr. Goodrich, welcome to Trinity Church. I'm sorry I won't be there this Christmas Eve, but my pay has finally caught up with me and I'm sending 10% of my pay to you. I want you to find somebody who really needs the money this Christmas and give it to them. I've heard my other preachers say in years past that the greatest blessing at Christmas is learning how to be generous with somebody else. He'd sent a check for $50. Dr. Goodrich said, I knew who needed this $50. Joe needed this $50. So I drove over to that neighborhood, to that house, parked my car, got out, knocked on that lean-to, and when Joe invited me in, I walked in and said to him, Am I bringing Merry Christmas to you? One of our young men is serving in the United States Navy in the South Pacific, and he has sent $50 for me to give to somebody at Christmas, and it's you. I'm giving you $50. And Joe started to cry. And then he said, oh, wonderful. I know what I'm going to do with that. And Dr. Goodrich said, what? And he said, I want to give $25 to the orphanage and $25 to the Christmas offering for the poor. Dr. Goodrich said, you don't understand. You've been giving your 10%. This is over and above. This is for you. And the man said, then I can do with it what I want, right? Yes, I want $25 to go to the orphanage and $25 to go in the fund to help the poor at Christmas time. I pray, said Paul, that love will abound in you for each other and for all Number three, he uses the word holiness. Holiness, we know this word. When we were waiting our turn to come to the table last week, when all the prayers were being offered, when I had just given the prefaces, you remember? It is very meet, right, and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto Thee, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God, Therefore, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify Your glorious name, evermore praising You and saying, and Dr. Pensera gave you that right note on the organ and you jumped to your feet and sang, Holy, Holy. A table set apart. Bread set apart. Wine set apart. A time set apart for you to come and eat and drink with the one who was crucified and has been raised. The word sanctuary comes from the Latin sanctus, meaning holy, a set-apart place. A set-apart place. And for us to be made holy is to make our behavior for God to make our behavior more like His Son, our Lord Jesus. Not like all of them out there, but like Him in here. To act more like Him. Dr. Stanley Harvoss is a professor at our Duke Divinity School. He's recently written another book, now published, uh, 
He co-authored this one with a fellow named Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier heads up a home for people whom nobody else wants. Uh, many of them are physically ill. Uh, some of them are physically handicapped in any number of different ways. It's sort of the refuse of the world are invited to come and live at this home. And Jean Vanier writes in his part of the book that, that people who feel that they've been discarded, that nobody wants them uh, because they're handicapped, crippled, disabled in one way or another, whether it's mentally, emotionally, physically, that they have to test love a long time before they can believe it's real and for them. And so he had to learn, he said, to be gentle. To be gentle. Now, don't equate gentleness with lack of strength or power. Um, I go down every Sunday morning to pray with the choirs just before worship is going to begin. And I often hear Dr. Pensera saying to the choirs that sometimes in the quietest places, the softest places, you have to sing with more energy. Um, sometimes it takes more energy to sing the soft passages uh, well than it, than it does the really loud ones. Uh, so with being gentle. Being gentle doesn't mean uh, not having strength. It doesn't mean weak. But gentleness, dealing with these who come to the home gently, loving them gently so that they come to believe in love. And Stanley Harvoss in his part of the book says, you see, we all have to be reminded that we are wounded, wounded by our loneliness, that no matter how long we've lived with a spouse or with our children, with our parents, with grandchildren, with aunts, uncles, cousins, no one knows us completely. No one. There's always something about us, some mystery about us that no one quite understands. And Stanley Harvoss says that those who come to live at this home now run by Jean Vanier are, are those we meet on the street or in the shopping malls. Everybody has this wound of loneliness, he says, that only Almighty God can finally meet. That life is a gift for all of us. Those who live at the home, those who live in your home, are those who come from somebody else's home whom you see here at church or in Sunday school or out in the streets of Tulsa. To know that we are loved and to accept God's love as a gift. As a gift. Once more. And if we accept His gift, then allow His amazing grace to make us more like what God had in mind when He created us. Number four. This is an appropriate text for the first Sunday in Advent because of the last few words. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Now, there are three ways we can sort of look at this. One is, we're getting ready for Jesus' birthday. That's important. Uh, Christmas Eve, we will have four big services here. And at the first three of them, we recreate the creche. Uh, we have Mary and Joseph and the baby. We have shepherds and we have wise men. Because this is a celebration 
of what God did for us once and for all in Mary's child, Jesus. In a second sense, we believe that our Lord Jesus comes regularly. Every Sunday we meet in the library to pray with those of you whom we invite, different ones every week as you know, to come and pray with us and then to continue their prayers at the altar. And we're praying that that people who worship here will know they've been in the very presence of Almighty God. Last Sunday, Dr. Pensera signaled with the chimes up in the ceiling that, that our Lord Jesus had come to the table Would you believe that He had come to the table and He was waiting for you to get there? So we believe that He comes and comes and comes again. We also believe that that He comes regularly to take by the hand those whom we love who have died. Tuesday night we had charge conference and Mike Chafin, our district superintendent, was seated right next to me. Dr. Tankersley was called forward to read the names of church members who have died during the last month and to say a prayer. I had not seen the list last Tuesday, but I leaned over to Mike and said, Mike, we average two a week. We had not met in a month, and Dr. Tankersley read eight names. So we pray that Jesus was telling it just the way it is when He said, I will come again. And take you to Myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And we believe that inevitably and finally history belongs to God. That as He was at the beginning, He will be at the very end. And that the One whom He sent, who sits at the right hand, will come again. We believe He will come again. Sue Monkhead has written about the death of her father-in-law. Very suddenly, he died at age 60. And Sue says that her her mother-in-law just could not seem to find comfort. Um, The father-in-law died on a September 10th. And they went into the fall and all the leaves falling and things looking like they're dying. And and she said, my mother-in-law just grieved hard all fall. And then came winter and it was cold and there was ice and there was snow. And she grieved all winter. We hoped with spring, the budding of the flowers and the coming of Easter, she would do better. And she did seem to when her husband and her favorite tree, a pink dogwood, bloomed just at Easter time. But soon enough the flowers faded and the leaves came. And then it was hot, hot summertime. And she grieved all summer, just could not seem to be consoled. And Sue writes, I'm not going to explain this to you. I'm just going to tell you what happened. On September the 10th, the anniversary of my father-in-law's death, my mother-in-law went out to the mailbox and saw that pink dogwood filled with blooms. And it changed her. It changed her. She seemed to say from that point on, if God can make a dogwood bloom on September the 10th, He can raise my husband from the dead. Amen.